You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Edelman knows just how important it is to be prepared for whatever life hands you. Do you have a strategy to help protect your wealth and your family? Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to learn more about what you need for your financial situation with a complimentary wealth checkup. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. Just as diet culture has been really challenged, we can also challenge beauty culture because I see beauty culture as a cousin of diet culture, right? It's this matrix that sells us on this notion that we're not enough as we are and we should buy products or services to fix ourselves. Hey everyone, it's Jean Chatsky. Thanks for joining me today on Her Money. So maybe you realized this already sometime in your past, maybe the last time you took a turn around a CVS or a Rite Aid, but it is much more expensive to be a woman than it is to be a man. How much more? Well, a 2020 study from the California Senate Committee found women pay an average of $2,400 more for the same goods and services like razors and shampoo and conditioners and even t-shirts than men. That's each year, and it can add up to almost $200,000 in what we call the pink tax throughout a woman's life. And it's not even factoring the money that we spend on things that men don't typically spend on things like hair dye and manicures and waxing and makeup. And the list goes on and on and on. Not to mention plastic surgery. More women than ever are going under the knife to achieve the look they want, and they're paying for it. A new survey from Real Self found nearly one in four people in the U.S. have had at least one cosmetic procedure. People ages 30 to 44 are willing to spend 10 thousand to a hundred thousand dollars to achieve their dream feature. And while the majority of men say that they still see plastic surgery as fake and vain, the majority of women see it as a form of self-improvement, an empowered personal choice, a way to build self-confidence. And the epicenter of the plastic surgery industry, well, it's undeniably South Korea, which is also the home of the famous 10-step K-beauty routine. Seoul leads the world in plastic surgery rate. K-beauty industry is projected to be worth a whopping 14 billion, with a B, dollars by 2027. Our choices to get that surgery or that procedure or buy that $200 face cream can feel empowering. But will this constant drive to look better and feel better ever be enough. Elise Hugh, author of the new book, Flawless, Lessons in Look and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital, experienced all of this and more firsthand. She was the NPR bureau chief responsible for coverage of North Korea, South Korea, and Japan for nearly four years. 
Today, she is a correspondent and host at large for NPR. And since April 2020, the inaugural host of TED Talks Daily. Elise, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here. I'm excited about this. You wrote this book after you had the experience of moving to Seoul in 2015 to be the first ever Korea and Japan bureau chief for NPR. And you say you'd never visited before. After being a journalist in the U.S. for years, what differences did you notice and how fast did you notice them? I guess I clocked them immediately as soon as I landed in Seoul the very first time in order to go apartment hunting. And it was partly because I was plopped into Myeongdong, which is the makeup and skincare district of Seoul. So as soon as I was out on the streets, it was one skincare store after skincare store after skincare store. And then floor to ceiling ads featuring faces, really close up faces of Korean women or a face and maybe a little bit of torso. And then in the subway station, there was a lot of before and after signage for weight loss or for plastic surgery improvements. And so I was very immediately barraged with this notion of what an ideal Korean woman is supposed to look like, but also that you could pay money to get there, that there were services and products and procedures you could avail yourself of in order to try and get closer to that aspirational ideal. A study from Korea's Trade Promotion Agency actually reported that K-beauty exports to the U.S. more than doubled. That was just from 2014 to 2016. And today, Korea exports more beauty products than it does smartphones. How did this happen? It went really side by side with the growth of Hallyu, which is the Korean cultural wave of K-pop, K-film, K-drama, animation, fashion, and food. Alongside all of that, we have seen these images of beautiful, aspirational Korean men and women be transmitted all across the globe. And so it made it easier to kind of sell all the products and procedures and rituals in order to get there to look more like the aspirational K-pop idols that are now globally huge. So BTS debuted the same year that I first got posted to Seoul. Those sheet masks and all of that popularity first began cresting or that wave began cresting when I first got posted to Seoul. And then by the time I came back, nearly four years after living and working there, the K-beauty export number, I think, had close to quadrupled. And so... It is true that the industry is huge, but the story of it can't be told without mentioning how powerful South Korea has become when it comes to just exporting culture generally, visual and virtual culture that we see everywhere. That's incredibly true. It's interesting to look at you and look at your story because you write about the fact that despite being Asian, you felt like an outsider, not only in South Korea, but an outsider growing up in the Midwest. How have you approached beauty through the arc of your life and decisions that you've made along the way about ways to try or not to try to fit in? Yeah, I feel like I 
felt the most pressure to fit in around my teenage years. So during adolescence, where everybody wants to fit in. And for me, being the only Asian, if not maybe one of the only Asians in the West St. Louis suburbs where I first grew up, and then Dallas, Texas, same general idea, though a few more Asians in Dallas. I always kind of wanted to both fit in, but also not draw too much attention to myself. And so it made being able to express myself on the outsides rather complicated because there are some things that I just can't change about myself, like the shade of my skin, my height, my natural hair color. And it is really obvious that I am Asian and that's not something that I can change. And I think that in order to assimilate (laughs) to the very European-looking American that is predominant in the St. Louis suburbs, it was just a constant feeling of not being able to keep up, right? And by my teenage years, at least I had a stronger sense of self, but it was around, I think, age 16 where I rather accidentally got scouted to work as a teen model. (laughs) And then the pressures about my body came into play. So those agents were the first ones who said things to me like, well, look out for the buffets or are you paying attention to your body? And I hadn't received those kinds of messages from my mother for example, or anything in my home. And so that was the first time where I really started feeling as though I was too big or that I was taking up too much space and that I might need to cut that down. And so that was my relationship or that's where things got really complicated and darker for me. I think that was around my teenage years. But what felt liberating initially about moving to South Korea was finally I was going to be surrounded by all these Asians. Everybody else was Asian. And so I felt like, wow, this I've never lived in this reality. And it was exciting at first, but it was immediately unwelcoming, immediately unwelcoming to be an Asian American in Korea. Because one, even from the gate of how you walk, they can tell that you're not <laughs> a native Korean. And I'm a Taiwanese American, so I'm not even Korean American. And the issues with my appearance were... Not only being too big, because South Korea's one size of clothing, which is called free size, is a U.S. size two. And so immediately I was faced with fat phobia or just not being able to buy clothing in boutiques. And then it was that my skin was too dark for a lot of the makeup shades that are offered. But because Korea is a homogeneous society, 97% of Korea is full of ethnic Koreans. And so they don't have to offer a wide variety of shades in the way that makeup brands would in the United States. And so my skin was too dark. My waist and hips were too large. And then the freckles were a big problem. So freckles are very frowned upon. I think I write that I might as well have had boils on my face because constantly I was confronted with this like, ooh, we could remove those for you. Oh, man. There was a story. I think it was the New York Times over the weekend about how people are adding them on. Yes. So you should feel fine. Right, exactly. So the trends change. And what we're seeing with our bodies now, and this is one of the themes that comes out in my reporting, is that we are used to fashion trends changing, right? The clothes that you put on and take off and that that kind of trends, the trends come and they go and then they repeat themselves because so many of the clothes that were cool in my teenage years are now back and my daughter's wearing them and it's so weird and trippy. But our bodies were considered fixed. They were not considered malleable until the scientific and technological and medical developments that we're seeing now where we can treat our bodies in the ways 
that we have treated fashion where we go into the salon and we get updates. And so now people who have gotten filler can get their filler removed. Or people who have wanted slimmer cheeks can soon, maybe the next time the trend changes, can fill them back up again. And it really is this constant project of having to improve and change your body that's reached into the skin and tissue and bone. It is seeing these revisions, pictures of people who have had revisions upon revisions. It's frightening. Look, I say this, I'm 58. I've had my share of Botox. I like my Botox. I'm a little scared to go down the slippery slope, but I see where it comes from. In the book, you write that there is a a beauty researcher and philosopher named Heather Widows, and she basically says, we all still aspire to four pillars of beauty, thinness, firmness, smoothness, and youth, right? At 58, I can see all of those starting to slip away, How are they pitched to us? And how do you think having immersed yourself in this culture, we should react to those pitches? The way global beauty pillars are getting so embedded is by normalizing and naturalizing these pillars. Beauty has always been a performance of class, right? So aristocratic women in China would bind their feet, for example. But not everybody could do it. Only aristocratic women would do it because if you were working in the fields or something, you couldn't bind your feet into tiny little stumps because it would be impractical. But these days, beauty pillars, whether it is thinness or firmness or youth or smoothness, they're kind of normalized over the entire population such that we become so familiar with these ideals that it's harder to challenge them. And then we think of them as natural or clean. For example, hairlessness, which is under the umbrella of smoothness, right? Hairlessness isn't necessary, isn't medically necessary, and yet more and more it's normalized, yet we have to pay a lot to pluck and wax and groom in that way. And then there's more and more regions of our body where it's kind of abhorrent to have hair on them. And that's a way that these beauty pillars kind of become more and more embedded and then thought of as normal and natural. And the more they become thought of as normal and natural, the harder it is to resist them. And the more marginalized you become if you don't participate in it. But it's so crucial to remember that This is labor that we're participating in, and it's labor that we're not just doing for free. We are paying to do it, and we're paying to do it not with just dollars and cents, but also with our time and our energy, and time is so important because it's a lever of our freedom. Let's talk about both of those things, the time and the actual dollars and cents. When you look at the amount of money that we spend on beauty. When you look at the amount of money that women in particular lay out for, and I think hairlessness is the perfect example because I think five years ago, maybe 10, there wasn't a European wax on every other corner as there seems to be today, right? Is there a level, and I know that this is asking you to sort of make a judgment, but is there a place of feeling that you are doing enough without succumbing to doing too much for your wallet, for your pocketbook. So often these days, what it means to be conventionally pretty 
means you look conventionally wealthy because actually being able to meet the standards of conventional beauty these days requires so much time and effort and labor. And often that labor is from outside workers, like people who inject us with neurotoxins or people who are dyeing hair or, or painting nails. And so the line varies depending on what your economic freedom is, right, and what you can spend. What I worry about there is that it only deepens inequality and it only keeps an underclass aspiring to a kind of beauty that costs a lot of money and that it's riven with anxiety for the entire system. Because even if you are at the top and can meet the standards of conventional beauty or factory-issued beauty standards, you're constantly having to get interventions, especially as we're getting older, you're constantly having to pay for interventions in order to keep up. So the whole system ends up being a hamster wheel. Yeah, and you're totally right about that. We pulled a study, and granted, it's a 2016 study, but it's still recent enough to worry me. Researchers concluded that attractive individuals earn about 20% more than people who are just average. But the gap between them is reduced when people are highly groomed, meaning they spend a lot of money on all of these things. There is a pretty privilege, right? Well, there's a pretty privilege, but is there a way to fight back? I mean, I'm wondering if, in part, the fact that people are so reluctant to go back to the office is that we haven't had to spend as much money on these things. Yeah, I think there's a way to fight back kind of individually, right? And there are collective ways of thinking and collective frameworks that I think need to be put into practice. So by the time I get to the end of my research, I really call for honoring the diversity and the variety and the difference that we see in nature and what's inherent in nature. And so right now we're seeing this debate, for example, with Ozempic, because Ozempic and off-label uses of Ozempic, which is a diabetes drug that is then causing people to lose weight, could portend a future in which everybody can be skinny or everybody who can afford it could be skinny. And so it's raising the question of Okay, well, if we could all be skinny, then why don't we just do that? But my response to that is that just as the proper solution for racism isn't to make everyone white and the proper solution to homophobia isn't to make everyone straight, the proper solution to fat phobia shouldn't be to make everyone skinny and the proper solution to lookism or appearance-based discrimination shouldn't be to make everyone so-called pretty by whatever the reigning standards of the day are because there will always be people who cannot pay and cannot afford to try and meet that norm. So it will be always marginalizing for some segment of the population. And then it requires so much work and spending that only powerful interests and corporations gain from in order for us to try and reduce the difference that is part of the human experience. And so in the big picture, resistance means seeing and looking for and honoring difference and variety and diversity. And really cherishing that, I think I do a lot of work in my own household on trying to get really curious and talk to my daughters about fat phobia, for instance, because my daughters, who are only six and eight and ten, are already absorbing this notion that being fat is some sort of bad thing, that it's negative. And so I really try and get curious with them about that. Individually, obviously, this is a systemic problem and a cultural problem, and I don't put it on individuals to kind of be able to personally <laughs> change everything. But I do think individually we can 
enter this awareness and take part in the discourse. Just as diet culture has been really challenged, we can also challenge beauty culture because I see beauty culture as a cousin of diet culture, right? It's this matrix that sells us on this notion that we're not enough as we are and we should buy products or services to fix ourselves. And it is kind of the way that hustle culture has reached into our bodies. So just as so many millennials like me are remapping our relationship with office work, like we're saying, you know what? I'm not going to be on Slack all the time, or I'm not going to respond on weekends, or I'm going to make sure that I put my phone in airplane mode when I'm trying to spend time with my family. These are decisions that individuals are making in order to remap their relationship with work. And it's actually changing work culture writ large, right? Because a lot of folks are saying, no, I'm not going to go back to the office every day. We could imagine remapping our relationship with aesthetic work, too. If we think about it as labor, we can change the conditions of our labor. I want to come back to that in just a second. We are going to take a very quick break. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Preparing for the unexpected tomorrow is what gives us the peace of mind to live a life of freedom today. Protecting your family is about so much more than just saving and investing. Having a conversation about your wealth is an important part of your protection puzzle. Explore your options with a complimentary wealth checkup. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney or call 833-304-PLAN. We're talking with Elise Hugh, author of the new book, Flawless. Before we went to break, we were talking about remaking or remapping our relationship with beauty culture and with lookism, which is a word I've never heard, but I actually wrote it down because I, I think it's an important word for us to to hold on to, if only to try to stay away from it or figure it out so that we are not perpetuating it. When we talk on this show, and we're at our heart, we're a money show, when we talk about the economy, we try to come back and talk about our own personal economies, because I am completely aware I can do absolutely nothing about the stock market and interest rates and inflation, but I can do something about how much I am spending and saving and to some degree earning on a day-to-day basis. And I think that sort of an approach is necessary here, right? We may be able to change society a bit, but I think we'll change it if we approach it as an individual by making demands with our own dollars and with our own time. How would you suggest that we as individuals go about challenging this beauty culture that has arisen if we feel like we want to challenge it? There's a few ways that I have been changed just by the reporting on this subject that I've done over the past few years. One is I think about ritual rather than reward. That one way we end up spending a lot of money is that we're trying various ampules and essences and moisturizers and creams and eye creams and whatever it is because we want kind of immediate results. And what that does is it just fuels consumption, a lot of consumption and then a lot of 
trash, right? And this churn that then benefits the Sephoras of the world. And I'm not calling out Sephora specifically, or it's not the only beauty industry player, but it's somewhere I spend a lot of money. And so if we think about caring for our bodies and having to buy products in a way in which we center ritual over reward, then you are building kind of habits for the long term and not necessarily just spending wantonly. So that kind of helps me. The other is that I do think that social change can only come from a critical mass of individuals. And so we can opt out and kind of ask ourselves, where do I want to draw the line personally when it comes to upgrading myself? And beauty is such a paradox, right? Because physical beauty can be a vessel for self-realization and expression, and it's a way to nurture or be nurtured by the touch of beauty workers. Like, who doesn't love the head massage, the scalp massage when you're at uh, the salon, my right? My favorite thing, exactly. yes. So there is something really beautiful about seeking and that striving for physical beauty, but then the exacting nature of factory-issued beauty standards can also be a crutch to invest all our time and ourself, and it can come at the expense of becoming a full person. So another way to think about it is that yourself as maybe a pie and that that your outer appearance shouldn't take up too large of a slice of that pie because appearance actually has no bearing on our worthiness, despite what culture tells us. Appearance has no bearing on our worthiness. Our bodies are vessels for our souls. And so we should actually be nurturing our souls when we think about self-care, rather than just nurturing whatever is happening on the outside. So another thought or framework to think about is when you are purchasing a product or availing yourself of a procedure, I often ask myself, is this soul-driven or ego-driven? And I think we all have an emotional engine inside us that knows the answer to those questions. And when I say soul-driven or ego-driven, I mean, is buying this product or trying this or experimenting with this procedure, is it a deeper step into myself? Or is it tantamount to a costume? Am I looking over my shoulder? Am I trying to compete with other women who are my age or other women in my book club or whatever it is? And I think when I check myself in that way, the essence of who I am kind of can tell me the answer. Yeah. <laughs> I feel kind of a lot of pressure from my group because now that I'm 40, I have a lot of pressure among my friends about Botox in particular, right? Because everybody's getting it. And then I'm feeling like, oh, gosh, Everybody's getting it, so I should get it. I don't want to be the only person who doesn't get it. And nah, nah, nah. And so that is very ego-driven. <laughs> and then I did try it for my book. And after I did it, I was like, oh, yeah, I look better. It did kind of ease anxiety for me. And what ends up happening, though, is that you're normalizing something for your entire group of people such that anybody who can't afford it or doesn't want to do it stands out even more <laughs> or gets left out even more by not. And so... Another, and this is a final framework for thinking, is that I have come to think about self-care, the best kind of self-care, as caring for one another, that we derive so much from reciprocity and community and thinking about one another. And towards the end of my reporting and my research for Flawless, I got to meet older Korean women, Korean-American women in their 70s. They're called ajumas, colloquially. And these ajumas did not stop caring for their bodies, did not stop going and getting facials when they felt they needed it. But it was centered around kind of 
a care for community in which they were like, yeah, we know when we show up for our line dancing class, we don't want to be totally unkempt. We want to show kind of some respect. Like I put on a little makeup or I'll put on some lipstick as social etiquette. And then the care that they did on their bodies, like facials, for example, or going to the salon every once in a while, it was about touch and kind of the nurturing and healing aspects of touch because toward the ends of our lives, women are outliving men. And so for many older women, the touch of a beauty worker might be the only time they're touched in the course of a week or a month or longer, you know? And so it's really beautiful to get beauty care in that sense. So those to me are examples of soul-driven rather than ego-driven beauty work. Yeah. So this conversation is reminding me of a conversation that I had on this show recently about the senses and happiness. And Gretchen Rubin was on the show. She's written a new book about the senses and about getting in touch with the senses and how that sort of brought her back into her life. And she talked a lot about touch, which... I've had conversations with my mom who, after my father died, it was going to the spa and it was going to the salon that that was a sense of touch that in some ways, even though her kids kept hugging her, she felt like she was missing. For me, listening to this distinction between soul-driven and ego-driven, I can pick out the bottles in my very full drawer that are soul-driven. They're the scents. I don't wear cologne or perfume for my husband. I wear it for me because I feel better and brighter when I can smell something good all day long. He doesn't even notice it. And so for me, those are soul-driven rather than ego-driven. When it's a financial decision, I wonder if we're always seeing in beauty magazines or on beauty sites the hacks, the should you splurge or should you save? And I'm wondering what you learned from your reporting about where actually you should splurge if you are especially looking at things like skincare, which has really skyrocketed during the pandemic, where our use of an expense on makeup has dropped off kind of by a lot. Where do you sort of feel like the products are worth it rather than just a really expensive cream in a jar? Splurge on prevention. So splurge on sunscreen. Mm big Korean beauty takeaway that I got after the years of reporting was sunscreen, 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 sunscreen. Because what's the aphorism? An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Mm -hmm. So splurge on sunscreen. And then under my framework of thinking of beauty work as aesthetic labor, now I think about, okay, if you're going to start some sort of procedure or some sort of practice that once you start, you can't stop. So it's shaving or waxing or Botox. From what I understand, you have to go back every few months. So if you think about these practices as things that once you start, you can't stop, then you've got to ask yourself whether you want to make that investment over the course of however many years you're going to make it. So my 10-year-old wants to shave her legs, and I'm just trying to hold that off, like maybe for another year, because <laughs> that's a year's worth of savings <laughs> when it comes to time, energy, and cost of razors and shaving cream and other products that are going to be pink taxed, as you mentioned at the top of the show. So if I can hold off starting things that I'm going to have to pay for for the rest of my life, that's helpful. I usually don't dye my hair, same reason, because like once you do it, I would have to keep doing it. <laughs> And then with hair removal, 
in some cases, because once you start, you can't stop, I don't expect certain trends like having hairless legs to change within the next 20 to 50 years. And so in that case, the smarter investment might just be to laser. Yeah. Right. So if you think about things this way as like long term forever investments, then maybe do the permanent solution or pay extra now for the permanent solution rather than death by a thousand cuts. So to speak. Exactly. If you're <laughs> learning how to shave your legs, you're going to get plenty of cuts. I think that's really good advice. The only thing that I would add to it as far as the Botox is concerned, bangs. I would just add bangs because if you've got bangs, yeah. you really only have to go every six months if that. Okay. So it really cuts down on the expense. What are your hopes as we wrap this up for the beauty industry in five years and 10 years? What are your hopes for your daughters? Oh, gosh. I hope that their sense of self-worth comes from inner character-driven qualities and not their outsides. I hope that they celebrate the diversity that's inherent to the human experience. I hope that social media doesn't ruin them and send them into dangerous silos and echo chambers. I hope that I'm a good role model for them. I am trying to model two schools of thought that we haven't talked about yet. One is the notion of body neutrality, which emphasizes what the body can do rather than what it looks like. So no good bodies or bad bodies. We're all just bodies. And then the other is this notion of centralism, which focuses on what the body feels and focuses on an inner appreciation of the body. So I really hope my daughters will learn that or get to keep that because we children have centralism, right? When my four-year-old, I asked her why she stopped wearing this romper that looked so cute on her, so looked so cute on her. She told me it wasn't functional. She was like, I don't want to take off all my clothes to go pee-pee. So I actually have to think about and rewire myself to think about, like, how do the fabrics brush against my skin? Are my clothes comfortable for daily activities? Like, does this haircut work for me in a practical way and being outside and being in hot weather or whatever it is? And so I hope that we all do take a minute to be kinder to ourselves more than anything else, because the kinder I've gotten with my own self and with my own reflection, the more that has been able to redound outward and ripple towards how I treat other people. And so my hope is that ultimately that we are kinder to ourselves, especially about our appearances. And from that, it frees up time and energy, but also that we can be kinder to one another as a result. Elise Hugh, the book is Flawless, Lessons in Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital. Thank you so much for doing this with us. Where can we find more about you and about this book? Everything is on EliseHugh.com, E-L-I-S-E-H-U.com. And thank you, Jean, for having me. This was a delight. Before we dive into our mailbag, a quick word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. 
Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. And we're back with your mailbag and my daughter, Julia Chatsky. So I was talking on a run, actually, to my friend, Diane. Julia grew up with Diane and Diane's daughter, Sarah. And we were talking about Botox and how people who are really young are getting Botox. Are you hearing about this? I mean, I have talked on this show before about how I get Botox. I like my Botox. It helps my lines in my forehead. And But I don't think I got Botox till I was in my 40s. I mean, are you hearing about people who are getting it younger? Mom, I may be one of like my only friends who doesn't have Botox. You don't need it because you have no lines. I mean, I do have lines, but I have a mother who would scold me and say, you're too young. So I have refrained. (laughs) (laughs) I have refrained. And and people are doing this prophylactically, right? Yeah. I'm a do what makes you feel good kind of girl. So (laughs) I know. I'm living in Philadelphia across the street from grandmom, who is 83, and around the corner from Aunt Rosa, who is four years older than grandmom. And kind of think they look great. And I think Nana looks great. And they didn't do any of this stuff. Yeah, I know. So I wonder where the lines are. I wonder if we've already crossed them and if we're continuing to cross them. Well, I think there's a lot of people who agree. I also think I don't want to look like I'm in my teens in my 20s, right? So it's like a delicate balance. I looked like I was in my teens for many, many years into my 20s. It wasn't until I was about 30 that I stopped getting carded. Mm. When I was pregnant, that was a sign. Mm. (laughs) There you go. Go figure. Let's answer some questions. All right. Our question today comes from Amber. She writes, Hello, I got a 401k from a previous employer, and people keep saying I need to roll it into something else, like an IRA. I do not have any other 401k plans to roll it into. So what is the point of moving it, and what are some good options? Well, I can relate to this one, right? Yeah. No, you can. The point of moving it is just to make your life easier. So on average, young people who are starting out in the working world these days and getting their first job, they're going to change jobs about 12 to 15 times over the course of their career. If you got a 401k every single time you changed jobs and you left that 401k with your prior employer, which you're allowed to do if you've got a balance of, I think it's $5,000 or more in that account, then your retirement life And your plans for retirement would be a mess, right? You would have accounts here and there. You would have different investments in all of those accounts. You wouldn't know how much you had in total. You wouldn't know how the investments were allocated and if your asset allocation was in line with your age and your risk tolerance. And so the point of rolling the money over, whether you roll it into an IRA or whether you roll it into your new employer's plan, is just to make it easier so that you can sign on with one login and you can see all of your money in a single place and you can 
basically tell if you're on track to meet your goals. Now, you should not do this if you don't like the options in your new employer's plan. But there are so many different IRAs that you could roll the money into, and you can just keep rolling the money from each new job into this new 401k or into this new IRA. The one thing that you shouldn't do, and I'm not thinking that you were going to do this, Amber, because you didn't raise it, but we have a problem in this country that we call leakage. And leakage which sounds terrible. It really does. (laughs) It does. It sounds awful. It sounds like it's a commercial for something else. But basically, leakage is when money leaks out of 401k plans. And it leaks out of 401k plans for a number of reasons. But one of the reasons is that people change jobs and they say, oh, I've only got a few thousand dollars in my plan. Why would I bother rolling that over? I'm going to take the money out and I'm going to buy something fun. And when you do that, you have to pay penalties, you have to pay taxes, it gets really expensive really fast, and so you don't want to fall into that trap. But if you like the options with your previous employer and you're not being charged high fees by that previous employer, and your previous employer does charge you something for managing that money and you should know what that is, it's okay to leave it there, leave it there. And when you find another option that you like better, you can roll the money over them. Sound good? Sounds great. Our next question comes from Sandy. She writes, I have always saved and invested for the long term, but now that I'm retired and 72, my long term is not so long term anymore. I am not sure how to be invested now in order to preserve my money, but also not be afraid to spend it or splurge a little before I die. My basic expenses are covered by Social Security and two annuities. I have long-term care insurance and I have $1 million in stocks, 45%, and CDs slash cash, 55%. But I am scared to spend money, for example, on a new $45,000 car that I really want. Thank you in advance for any advice. Sandy, I love this question so much. And the reason that I love it is because you are so much more typical than you know. And I don't mean that in a bad way, by the way. I mean it in a good way. There is a lot in this question to unpack. The first thing is that 72 is not as old as you think it is. I was working on an article on this topic just this week and talking with a professor named Michael Finca, who works for the American College and really studies things like longevity and mortality tables. He thinks they're really fun. And he was explaining to me that if you've got enough money to worry about these things, which by the way you do, you will live longer than average. And that's because you are probably highly educated and you've got access to better health care. So a healthy 65-year-old man like this who's got money in retirement is going to live to 88 or 89. And a healthy 65-year-old woman is going to live till 90, if not more. So you are looking at another two decades, right? So I don't want to really talk about the fact that Your long term is not so long because actually it could be really long and there could be a lot of things that you want to accomplish with that time. Interesting to me is you've done the thing that 
gives people the freedom to feel like it's okay spending their money. You've annuitized. You've got two annuities. So Michael Finca's work actually has looked at people who've got similar sums of money in retirement. Some have all of their money in retirement portfolios of big lump sums of money. And some have taken some of those lump sums of money and turned it into an income stream using an annuity. And the people who have those annuities tend to feel much more comfortable spending the money. Why? Because they know that the annuity, which works like a paycheck, it works like social security, is going to send you another check next month. And so you feel comfortable spending the amount of money that comes in through your annuity. The question is regarding the other money that you have, the rest of that million dollars. And I would say, look at your goals. Look at what your big life goal is. What's the goal for that million dollars? Are you thinking that you want to leave it to somebody? And if you're thinking that you want to leave it to somebody, how much of that million are you thinking you'd want to leave? Take it off the table. Let's say you know your basic expenses are covered. You look at that million and you're thinking, all right, I want to leave half of it. I want to leave 500000 to somebody that I love or a cause that I care about. The other, that's yours. You can do whatever you want with it. And if you want to buy that $45,000 car with it, then I would say go ahead and buy the car because it's not going to change your quality of life not to have that money. Now, I wouldn't spend it all because things do happen, but I would say really think about the things that matter to you. Clearly, that car is one of them because it mattered enough to you to write a letter to me about that car. And make a plan to finance it or pay for it out of cash or buy it new or buy it used or however makes the most sense to you. And if you haven't talked to a financial advisor about how you're situated and about whether annuitizing a little bit more of your money would make you feel more comfortable spending in the years to come, particularly given that you've set yourself up well with long-term care insurance and I'm guessing a place to live that is also paid for, I would go ahead and, and I would have that conversation. But you should feel really good about how you've set yourself up to this point. You have very, very clearly done all of the work. So again, these are great questions. I love our listeners so much, Julia. I know you really do. Part of my ulterior motive in having you come and read these questions was that so you'd learn something. Are you feeling like you're learning something? For sure. Very insightful. All right. Well, thanks for being here. If you have any other money-related questions, we'd love to hear from you. Just send them to us by emailing us at mailbag at hermoney.com. We're going to take a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot... Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. 
and we are back with your money tip of the week. How do you know when to sell a stock? We spend so much time talking about the importance of investing for the long haul that we don't always talk about when and how to unload stocks that we don't want or need anymore. Number one on the list, figure out your investing goals. Are they long-term, short-term, or a mix of both? The second thing to know is what you own and have a sense of how each holding fits into your portfolio and goals. Finally, consider how the stock is performing relative to its peers. To learn more about buying and selling stocks, check out our investing club, Investing Fix. Visit investingfix.com for more information. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Elise Hugh for breaking down the dangerous prospect of perfection being sold to us by the beauty industry. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. Her Money is produced by Haley Pascalides. This show is mixed and mastered by CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Check out our new podcast, How She Does It, for intimate cocktail party-style conversations with today's most talented female leaders. This podcast is also part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. You can find us and other shows like us at airwavemedia.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon. We'll be right back.